evidence and answers. Darwin's theory of evolution dominates the sciences. Students in high schools and college are steeped in Darwin's evolutionary theory. Many of us remember it was in high school biology that we began to doubt the truth of the Genesis account and even the existence of God. What does Darwinian evolutionary theory teach? How do we answer the arguments of Darwinists? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zuckeran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today, Pat and fellow Evidence and Answers research staff member, Dr. Evan Kawamura, will address the challenges presented by Darwin's theory of evolution. Now with part one of this interesting interview is our host, Pat. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith and hope in Christ and biblical answers to the challenges of today. Well, Darwin's theory of evolution dominates the sciences. Students in high schools and colleges are steeped in Darwin's evolutionary theory. And many of us remember it was in high school biology class that we began to doubt the truth of the Genesis account and even the existence of God. Well, what does Darwinian evolutionary theory teach? Did Darwin answer the questions to the origin and diversity of life? How do we answer the arguments of the Darwinists? Well, to help us today is Dr. Evan Kawamura. Evan received his PhD in mechanical engineering from the University of Hawaii. He is a NASA Ames researcher and engineer working on aerospace applications, and his thoughts and opinions are his own and not that of NASA. Evan is also a research associate with us here on Evidence and Answers. So, Evan, it's great to have you on Evidence and Answers again. Yeah, thank you. Yes, Evan is a regular on our show. You can find his articles and other podcasts here on Evidence and Answers. So, Evan, as we begin, let me just first ask you a question. You have studied a lot of the sciences. You went through an entire Ph.D. program. Many believe that it is not possible to be serious about science and believe in the Bible. How were you able to put it together? Yeah, I think in college... It's very secular. They talk about evolution, but they don't really attack God. So I was very blessed and lucky to not have to have those kind of spiritual conversations with the professors or say like why evolution is wrong or why is it true? It was more of just accepted as fact. And then they just made their ideas, assumptions, theories based on that. So for me as a Christian, I went to a Halani school and we were given a scientific background of how that can match with the Bible. And so having that foundation prepared me for a secular classroom. Yes. Now you said one of the things that the professors at the university assumed was Darwin was fact. Is that indeed the case? No, I don't think so. I think it's one of those things like gravity. People kind of see it. And then people talk about it off enough, and then it just becomes accepted as fact, and then they just kind of move on. Right. So we're talking about Darwin's evolutionary theory today. And as we begin, Evan, you're going to be taking a lot from a particular book that you found very helpful on this topic. Uh, tell us, uh, what book are you getting a lot of your information from and that you recommend if people want further research on this issue? Yeah, I really like this book called Refuting Evolution 2 written by Dr. Jonathan Sarfati. He's from Australia. 
and he's uh, written a lot of papers. He's also a national chess champion. This is a response to the PBS series called Evolution that started in 2002 or something like that. Okay. Well, Evan, let's first begin with this. You know, Charles Darwin lived in the 19th century, I believe uh, from 1810 to 1880. So how did Charles Darwin come up with his ideas about his theory of evolution? Yeah, there's this other Charles named Charles Lyell, and he was a geologist. He believed that slow and gradual geological processes occurred over millions of years. And of course, he was not a believer, and so he didn't believe in Noah's global flood. So that was his answer for why it took a long time for the geological layers. And then, of course, he influenced Charles Darwin, who kind of copy-pasted Charles Lyell's idea into biology of taking millions of years of slow and gradual biological processes, which eventually turned into evolution. Yes. Now, evolution is claimed to be science instead of religion. But does Darwin's theory indeed have the evidence to make it an airtight case as many treat Darwin's theory? No, unfortunately not really. His biographer, James Moore, he said that Darwin's vision of nature was, I believe, fundamentally a religious vision. And so, at its core, evolution should be more of a religion, not really science. In fact, if we look at Darwin's history and interactions with Christianity, he had some unfortunate circumstances in his life. So his daughter, Annie, unfortunately died very early at a young age. And so he concluded that she was a victim of the laws of nature, that so she lost in the struggle for existence. So in terms of that famous phrase, survival of the fittest, she wasn't the fittest and she didn't survive. And he also called Christianity a damnable doctrine because he realized that his dad would be in hell because he didn't believe in Jesus as God and Savior of his sins. So he refused to let the truth and facts about Christianity dictate his scientific conclusions. So he was influenced by his emotions. So really it's kind of a religious or philosophical idea, not too much science at its core. And we can get into like the science later on, I think. Yes, you know, I've read Darwin's biography. I read about the tragic death of his daughter. And also, yeah, it really was the doctrine of hell and eternal separation or eternal punishment that really caused him to have a real, I think, uh, from what I read, a disdain for Christianity. Did you pick that up when you read Darwin's works? Yeah, it's very biased and one-sided. So it's kind of unfortunate that he didn't, try to get past his emotions and think logically and come up with an idea that fits everything. Yeah, now many people might be shocked because people say, well, Christianity is religion, Darwin is science. And you've actually stated that Darwin could actually be more like a religion. So briefly, you know, why do you say that? Because it's the whole idea that there is no God, so it's, it takes an atheist perspective. And so if there is no God, then... That kind of is a religious idea. And if you can explain how everything works without a God, then you use data, science, whatever. But the model that in includes God or not, that can be sort of related to religion. Now, you know, that leads to our next question here. Are there any significant scientific contributions from creationists or non-evolutionists or those who believe in an intelligent creator? We often hear 
as we're learning that Christianity is bad for science or it thwarts the advancement of science. Is that indeed the case? Yeah, I think it's unfortunate that some people might think that, but people have heard of guys like Isaac Newton, co-invented calculus, came up with laws of motion and gravity. Another guy, James Clerk Maxwell, he had this famous Maxwell equations, discovered electromagnetism. Louis Pasteur formulated germ theory of disease. He also disproved spontaneous generation, the idea that living creatures can come from non-living matter. And then there's Joseph Lister, who discovered antiseptic surgery, which reduced possibilities of infection from surgery. There's also Raymond Damiden, came up with MRI, magnetic resonance imaging, very good for the medical field. And then there's the famous leader of the NASA Apollo program, Werner Von Braun, rocket scientist and creationist. Here are some some few quotes that he said to be forced to believe only one conclusion that everything in the universe happened by chance would violate the very objectivity of science itself another thing he said what strange rationale makes some physicists accept inconceivable electrons as real while refusing to accept the reality of a designer that they cannot conceive him i endorse the presentation of alternative theories for the origin of the universe life and man in the science classroom it would be an error to overlook the possibility that the universe was planned rather than happening by chance. Yes, and if we just go right down the row, I mean, you listed several scientists who made great discovery, actually who founded many areas of the modern sciences. And if we go right down the row, there's many uh, on that list. I've spoken about them on previous shows. Many of the founders of the modern sciences, uh, as you mentioned, were indeed committed Christians, strong believers in an intelligent creator. Well, Evan, how should we scientifically classify Darwin's theory of evolution? Should we call it a theory, a fact, or is it something else? Yeah, I think we should be careful and we should not say evolution is a theory, but instead we should say evolution lacks proven facts, so it should not be promoted dogmatically, as Dr. Jonathan Sarfati states. The reason is that theories have methods of explaining some amount of data. But because we don't have a lot of data, we should say evolution is more of a hypothesis or a conjecture. Hypothesis is a tentative explanation of something that can be tested and verified by further investigation and data, or a conjecture which is a judgment or opinion based on inconclusive or incomplete evidence, so in other words, guesswork. Yes. Now, people might be surprised at hearing that because we call it the theory of evolution. Many treat it as indeed a fact. But you're saying that really the evidence is lacking in supporting this particular theory here. Tell us, um, give us some examples where assumptions are made with maybe not that strong an evidence to back up its case. Yeah, so you hear the famous claim, right, that dinosaurs turned into birds over millions of years but due to the fossil record, we don't have a lot of observations or repeatable events or data of dinosaurs slowly turning into birds because they would have millions of years to slowly gain wings, slowly gain feathers, a beak instead of a mouth with sharp teeth, things like that. So this claim should be actually classified as a conjecture because we have a lack of data. Yes. What's missing there to conclusively show that indeed these reptiles turned into birds. Yeah, the fossil record is a good one. But also, we should see repeatable events today in modern biology of 
some kind of reptile slowly turning to a bird or some kind of mutation that gives it new information that tells it to grow wings, grow feathers, a sharp beak, reduce sharp teeth, things like that. But we don't as far as I'm aware. Yeah, one of the things that we're missing in the fossil record is transitional forms. Uh, we should see a gradual process here in the fossil record of reptiles, let, let's just say like lizards, let's say growing these stubs and eventually they becoming longer and longer and longer in the fossil record until they're, they have wings and they've developed feathers. But we don't have those transitional forms in the fossil record, do we? I mean, what we have is a full reptile and then a full bird. We are missing those steps, all those transitional forms in the fossil record. That's what you're saying, isn't it? Yeah, that's one of the reasons why they call them missing links, because those links are missing. Yeah, and there should be just numerous transitional forms amongst all the species that transform from one species to another. But instead, what we find is full reptile, full amphibian, full mammal, right? We don't see those uh, transitional forms. Now, some Darwinists say, well, we just haven't found them yet. You know, what's your response to that? Well, it's very possible, but at the same time, we should make strong conclusions based on the data that we do have. So we can come up with guesses, hypotheses, conjectures, ideas, but we should not be shoving this down people's throats, especially in the science classrooms. Yeah, and I think we have done a ton of digging since Darwin's time. And I think Darwin stated, if we don't find these transitional forms, it's devastating to his theory. And with the mass amount of digging that we have, we still haven't found those transitional forms. And they should be abundant in the fossil record, shouldn't they? Right, absolutely, because it took, takes millions of years for them to slowly and gradually become new different kinds of animals. There's a huge amount of time that they can have. So there's lots of opportunities to produce all of these transitional forms. Yeah, and so it seems more to match the Genesis creation account, doesn't it? Where it says God created each, when he's talking to the animals, according to its kind. It seems to match that description more than this gradual process of mutations and adaptations and uh, survival of the fittest. Because we, we are lacking those transitional forms, aren't we? Yep, absolutely. And if you think about God as an engineer for a moment, you would think that his design would be mature and perfect at the very beginning. He wouldn't need to go back, fine tune some parameter, change a few things, and then come back and say, okay, let me try again. That's how we do it as engineers. We don't get it perfect the first time. Yes. Evan, you said that evolution would be more religion than science. So give us the definition of science, what you're talking about here. Yeah, there was a guy by the name of Sir Francis Bacon, a 16th century philosopher. And so he came up with six steps. So you make an observation, you make an induction, you come up with a hypothesis, then you have to go test that hypothesis with some experiments. And those experiments will give you some data which will prove or disprove your hypothesis, which then give you some knowledge, you can make a conclusion, and you can go back and repeat the process. Yeah, Sir Francis Bacon, many consider him the father of modern science. Uh, he came up with this model here, the scientific method, and many consider him the father of modern science, who was also a theist, a believer in an intelligent creator. Well, Evan, you know, if this is the scientific method, 
here, then does Darwin meet the criteria here? Unfortunately, no. He doesn't have the observation, so he's missing that piece. So he jumped to induction and hypothesis. And without experiments, he cannot prove or disprove the hypothesis. So he can't have a solid conclusion or have the knowledge and confidence that his ideas are correct. Now, that's surprising to many people who may be listening here. What do you mean he doesn't have the observation? He, he kind of jumped that step. Explain that one to us a little bit. Yeah, so as we said, right, because there are all these missing links in the fossil record, there aren't any strong evidences of these transitional forms. Those are key observations that he needs to have for his ideas to be true or not. But because they're lacking, it's hard to say for certainty that his ideas are correct. And also, I think another big hole in Darwin's theory is the origin of life. I mean, he never explained how we got life from non-life. And it's never been observed how we could get life from non-life through natural causes. Isn't that another big hole in the theory? Yeah, as far as we know, there aren't any experiments that have showed you how you can get non-living chemicals that form living cells by time, chance, or you zap it or something. There's no Frankenstein sort of experiment that demonstrates you can get life from something that's not alive. Yeah, you know the long-touted Ure Miller experiment uh, that was done in the 60s. Many thought that they had discovered the key to how we got life from non-life, but indeed that ended up being a flawed process, didn't it? Yep, I'm not too familiar with that one, but I yeah, I think assume... they believe they 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 created the wrong atmosphere for the Earth, and once they got the right atmosphere, they redid the experiment, you know, hundreds of times again, and did not produce uh, any uh, amino acids. Just two were produced in the first one, but as when they got the atmospheric conditions right, they didn't produce anything. And so that was a flawed experiment. But as you're saying here, we don't have any observations or successful experiments showing how we got life from non-life. And so that still remains a great mystery and a hole in Darwin's theory, isn't it? Right, because there's that whole story of goo to you evolution, but without any experiments, it's hard to say if this is just a story, a philosophy, religion, or some idea. Now, you know, scientists are often interpret the data, and they are saying that indeed Darwin's theory does have the evidence to support it. But what may shock a lot of people is that there is bias in the scientific community. And you talk about that, that indeed, you know, all of us have some kind of bias. But in science, there's a strong bias that influenced how they interpret the data and how they came to their conclusions. Right? Explain that for us a little bit. Yeah, so bias influences scientists and their conclusions, unfortunately. So if data points to an intelligent designer, some people just exclude the hypothesis because it's not naturalistic. Because it has God in it, it's like, well, I can't put God in my model, therefore I have to change my ideas, my conclusion. Stephen Jay Gould, a famous atheist, he said, the stereotype of a fully rational and objective scientific method with individual scientists as logical and interchangeable robots is self-serving mythology. So because people are biased, they're not 100% rational all the time, they don't always follow the scientific method, they can inject their ideas, and so that's going to cause them to come up with one-sided conclusions. Now that might be surprising to people. People think, science, you simply look at the facts and come to your conclusion. 
But indeed, uh, you and I and, and many in the scientific field understand your worldview or your particular predisposition to a particular view or against a particular view can influence the way you interpret the data, even in the scientific arena. Isn't that correct? Yep, absolutely. And so that's why Darwin kind of didn't want to believe in Christianity. Yeah, you work with scientists there in your field, and so you see some of this. I'm in the area of historical apologetics. Uh, my graduate degrees are in historical works and archaeology. And so I can also see that in the forensic sciences where they can look at the evidence that is there and for those who do not want to believe or have an agenda to show that the Bible is not historically reliable, will often try to interpret that data in a different way. And those of us who believe the Bible is indeed historical, we try to be as objective as we can on both sides. But a lot of times we see how our worldviews or our particular position on a particular issue can indeed influence the way we look and we interpret the data. You know, talk about that a little bit in the arena where, where you work. I'm not sure how this is related or not, but we don't really look too deeply into like how our worldviews affect things. As engineers, we look at creating some model with some data, try to come up with a solution, solve some problem. Most of the time, our worldviews, fortunately, do not dictate our conclusions, our designs. It's based on lots of measurements, lots of observations, things that we can measure, figure out, model. And if we get it right, great, our model's pretty good. If it's kind of wrong, then is it acceptable or not? We can give it some tolerance. But most of the time, as far as I'm aware, I don't really see many things that cause our worldview to dictate our designs as engineers. All right, Evan, so tell us a little bit about the general theory of evolution as defined uh, by several prominent scientists here. Yeah, so you could say it's the theory that all living forms in the world have arisen from a single source, which itself came from an inorganic form. But ironically, the evidence which supports this is not sufficiently strong to allow us to consider it as anything more than a working hypothesis. So tell us, Evan, you know, what is the necessary ingredient for evolution here? You have to have an increase in genetic information. But similarly, just like the fossil record, we don't have any examples of new information that's added to the genes. Instead, we have many examples of sorting or losing information. Yeah, expand on that a little bit. What do you, what do you mean that there's no information of adding to genes and instead what we have is sorting and losing information. What do you mean by that? So there's the staph bacteria and it became resistant to penicillin by mutation. So if you look more deeply, you realize that this mutation actually disables the control gene, which is a loss of information. And so it causes the bacteria to produce penicillinase, which is an enzyme that destroys penicillin. So because the mutation causes staph to overproduce this enzyme, it makes it very resistant to large amounts of penicillin. So this is a benefit from a loss of information, but this is not a new information example. Yeah, so that, that's a great example here. You didn't attain new information here 
Instead, there's a loss of information here in this mutation. So it's not an adaptation to a more greater complexity. Is that what you're saying? Right. It's not like the staff learned how to fight against penicillin. It just so happened that it got kind of lucky. By turning off this control gene, then it produced too much penicillinase, and it ends up helping the organism survive against penicillin. So it just got lucky. Yeah, so you didn't add anything new. You took something away. Right. Well, our time today has come to a close. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you have the opportunity to head on over to our website, that's evidenceandanswers.org, you'll find we have a wide variety of different topics that will make for an incredible conference series. So if you would like Pat to speak at your church, your Bible study, or even to schedule a conference at your church or location, give him a call in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. Be sure to use our search engine for available resources. We have everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So share our website with those around you. To keep quality broadcasts like Pat's on the Air, we rely on generous financial support from you, our listeners, for the opportunity to partner with us. Once again, we'll direct you to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. Oh,